You're listening to That'll Preach. I'm Brian, here with my co-host, Paul. We've got a great show today. We're going to talk a little bit about Calvinism, Charismatics, Anglicans, Catholics, all the smells and bells and election and predestination and speaking tongues and all the kind of stuff that you want to talk about. We're going to hit all the controversial points today. Sort of. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe I overhyped it. That's probably a little bit overhyped. That's probably a little bit that's overhyped. That's good. It's going to keep people listening. Got a great article we dug up 2016 by Dr. Scott Red. Scott Red. Scott Red with two D's. <laughs> and two T's. And two T's. <laughs> that's right. This, the final D is silent. Or what if he was, actually, <laughs> if he's listening to this on the very rare chance that he is, what if he pronounces the last name Reddid? You know, Reddid. Like, yeah, it's like excuse me, it's Reddid. Like Chris Red. Exactly. Oh, Chris Red. SNL. Hilarious. Brian's spirit animal. My Brian's favorite. role model. <laughs> My role model. Everything I aspire to in life. But uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, liturgy, the smells and bells. Right. We were trying to workshop bells and smells, as bells one and could smells, say. right. Bells and smells. And I was like, man, that's gotta be a great store name or brand name for bells that produce smells. <laughs> Maybe like a fragrance, like you shake the bells and then a fragrance comes out. Oops. Somebody text, texted me. So popular. I know someone asking for your bells and smells. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Another order of bells and smells. Maybe it's like a, it's a specific kind of um, deodorizer for uh, bathrooms. It's a little bell. Oh, that's what it is. You're in the bathroom. You're doing what you got to do. Number two, it's really stanky. You ring a little bell and it releases this fragrance to cover the smell, bells and smells. Is this what you wish you had, Brian? I'm this not, is what that, everyone nothing else to do with me. This has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with me. This is just me being entrepreneurial, but something to consider. This so, is going to be offensive to all liturgical brands of Christianity. Liturgical ever. people don't listen to this podcast. That's right. We're only appealing to the doctrine group. That's right. That Scott No, 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 no. The experiential. Well, okay. You might be confused about what we're talking about here. That's because we haven't introduced what we're actually talking about. Because, you know, when Paul and I sit down, we don't plan this stuff out. We just sort of shoot from the hip. And that's putting it generously. Right. <laughs> we exactly. shoot from below the hip. We, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know about that, Paul. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're... Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So, Dr. Scott Red of RTS, he's written this article called Three Modes of Christian Formation, Experience, Doctrine, and Liturgy. And it's really kind of a observational, but a little personal article he's written. And uh, basically, he's creating a paradigm. And maybe to start off, the reason this interested me is because I've always joked that, like, you know, you get saved in a Baptist church or a mm -hmm. non-denominational church, and then you learn theology at, like, a Presbyterian church, and then you die in an Anglican church when you're old, and, you know, you have them, that you, 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 you sort of see life stages attached to certain movements. So if you're younger, it's more charismatic, then you get a little older, and it's mm -hmm. more doctrinal reformed, and then when you are an empty nester or a grandparent, you're just you all graduate. up in the Anglican yeah. Catholic vibe. And uh, so we, so that's something that I've always sort of observed. I mean, tongue in cheek, obviously. But it resonates with some experience. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. sort of is, you're not really seeing like, I mean, you, you sort of, you think about like the big movements, like the more charismatic like movements like Bethel or Hillsong mm -hmm. or, you know. Elevation. The low, yeah, like low church, <laughs> 
low liturgy. Yeah, elevation, exactly. Um, it's very youth driven. And then you can imagine who's going to, you know, a very doctrinally heavy church, maybe a little older. And, uh, and you can kind of, there's kind of a stereotype, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you can kind of like the cool hipster people go to this kind of church and then like the nerdy theological people, they go to this church and they act this way and they, you know, wear this kind of, you know, clothing or something like that. And then you think about liturgical people are a certain way. So we can kind of make generalizations about how people choose to self-select and, and, and join different movements. But what's interesting is what, what Red is saying is not only do different people sort of gravitate at different, you know, maybe stages of their life or in, you know, different sort of temperaments are attracted to certain types of churches, but that in your own individual life, you can kind of cycle through them. Right. And so he's saying there's a pattern he sees. And the pattern is this. People usually start off in an experiential church. Um, then they sort of move on to a doctrinal mindset. Not even switching churches, but even in your own development. You start off experiential, you then different doctrine. phases. Yeah, different yeah, phases. Yeah. Experiential, doctrine, and then liturgical. Yeah. And that's kind of the cycle. And he says it goes one way. You rarely see people go from doctrine to experience or from liturgy to doctrine or from experience to liturgy. It usually goes one way. You start off very experiential, then you start to learn doctrine and you start to formulate propositions. And then from there, you start going more liturgical. And it's really important, and this is something he points out, and we're gonna actually go back in and talk about each of these things. But in this phase, it's not going from something inferior to something superior. So it's not like you're starting off experiential and then you elevate and now you're more doctrinal. And then you become a, even more mature, becoming just liturgical. No, these are actually three good things, three components of a Christian life that are mutually reinforcing. But they just sort of happen to occur in a certain sequence in our lives. Usually, our entry point in Christianity is experiential. Usually, not always, but usually, youth camp, revival, uh, uh, you know, a conference, um, you know, a, a, a really powerful sermon, Easter service, whatever. Hmm. Um, and he's just basically tracing development. So again, this is not going from inferior thing to superior thing, but just different aspects of the Christian life that at certain points in our life, we emphasize more. And not only do we emphasize them more at certain points in our life, but we move from each of these spheres in predictable patterns in general. Uh, anything to add to that, Paul? I'm actually more okay with uh, calling it superior and inferior. Really? I'm more okay with uh, thinking of it in terms of evolution. Okay. Yeah. Um, A false doctrine. Well, I mean, I think, I do think that there's something about, uh, so the experiential mode that he talks about is about spontaneity and feeling and very individualistic. Right. And the doctrinal mode is about systematic thinking, doctrine, logic, and then liturgy is very like corporate focused. I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think that there's any one of those is completely true and has it all, but I do think there's an element of growth in becoming less individualistic in your faith and more communal, collectivistic, corporate. Like, uh, I, I do think that that's one merit. You mean communist. Of, <laughs> that's right. I'm anti-American. That's right. There is, I mean, there is something to be said about the, uh, the tie-in between American evangelicalism and individualism. Like it's a specific brand of Christianity. And I think it probably has to do with our individualistic 
worldview and philosophy. Um, I think the the experiential view is tied to thinking about the world in a very individualistic picture. Well, maybe we should start there then. Okay, so you're basically saying you do see an evolution that a more mature Christian is going to be more liturgical? Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily, because you can also be liturgical and just be going through motions. Sure. But I think if you start off experiential and then you start um, constructing or enhancing, strengthening your Christian life with doctrine, and then you go liturgical, where all, all I mean by that is you have a more corporate focus. Like what we're doing in church is it's no longer I, but we and it's 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 about the church. It's so about these people that I'm worshiping with. It's removing the emphasis from myself onto this body of people. So you want to you want to end up liturgical with having gone through experiential and doctrine. I think so. That's yeah. the idea. Not yeah. that liturgical is the best, because liturgical without doctrine right. or experience would be dead. Just or empty. Just right. Dead, exactly. Right. right. Um, many liberal churches that have denied the gospel sure. are very liturgical. Yeah. But absolutely. you're saying that there's a if you start off with experience and then you've strengthened with doctrine and you, then you learn about liturgy and yeah. the communal focus that they're mutually reinforcing, but there's a certain pattern to it. I, I do think so. And I, I've noticed, noticed this even in my own life and starting off very high school, college was very experiential, very much about the sort of the, the hype, the energy, the, my personal experience with Jesus kind of thing. And then as it began to mature, I began thinking about salvation and the Christian life in more concrete, logical, systematic, uh, you know, tulip helps structure how you think about salvation, all this stuff. Like your view of even what you are as a Christian, what your salvation is, becomes more enhanced. And as a result, you better appreciate what it is to be a Christian. But it's still sort of like individualistic. And I think as I've began to appreciate like elements of Anglicanism and liturgical Christianity, um, even just beginning to recognize that God is coming to save a church. And part of being at a church is worshiping with other people and that that's a good thing in and of itself. And so salvation is not just me, but we, I think there's a healthy instinct in that. But, but I mean, you're right. Each, each element has its own distinctive pros and cons, but I think if you go through those phases, you come out more nuanced. And if you use the next step to strengthen the former step, you get a healthier Christianity at the end. But do you want to go from liturgical to experiential? I think so. Yeah. And and he mentions that. He mentions right. that it's cyclical. It's experience, doctrine, liturgy, and then liturgy back to experience. And part of me misses the experiential, right? Um, so I think every time you're in one of those, you look to the others as a kind of corrective. Or you you miss well, what it is you came out of. Or you, yeah, yeah. you crave the next step, right. what it has to offer. So if you grow up liturgical, let's say a lot of times people grow up Catholic. Right. Cradle and Catholic. like, man, I got saved. Right. In high school mm -hmm. at a youth camp and the right. speaker was awesome and the music is amazing. So mm -hmm. it's experiential. They go from liturgical and the experiential makes the gospel alive. Right. Or you often hear about, man, I went to this really corny, trying to be hip church, didn't really teach the Bible. And then I started, I heard John Piper for the first time. Right. And I started right. reading doctrine and I went from experiential to doctrinal. Mm -hmm. Or you're doctrinal and you're like, man, uh, this is like. I want to, I feel like I'm having to figure this all on my own. Yeah. It's kind of confusing. Now I'm starting to read church history. I'm, I want more group identity kind of thing in a mm -hmm. good way. And I started thinking, man, liturgy is really helpful for me. It's structuring. It's taking my theology and making it practical and right. worshipful. Mm -hmm. It's giving me a, a, a tool to express the things that I know. Right. And then you start to go more liturgical. So each of these, the, the 
step you came from was lacking something and the step you go to has something that you crave. Yeah. And what something red talks about is don't assume that the next step is necessarily like remove the past step. It's enhancing it. So your experience is enhanced by doctrine. Your doctrine should be enhanced by liturgy. Right. right, Your liturgy should be enhanced by experience. And so I, I like there's, there's a balance here. Isn't it interesting that you don't get doctrine to experience? Like you can't imagine someone who grew up in a like, like right. Calvinistic, like a Presbyterian who then becomes like Hillsong. Right. Right. Like that, 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 that move just they doesn't usually happen. go higher church. Right. And I wonder why that is. Like, I think it's probably by design. I mean, it, it's sort of like doctrinally, you can't think your way into like knowing the love of God mm-hmm. alone. You can't alone think sure. your way. Yeah. There are embodied ways of doing this. The best way of thinking about that is oftentimes a shift to liturgical coincides or maybe be motivated by a shift in understanding the sacraments. Yeah. The Lord's Supper becomes more than just symbolic remembrance. Not not going to the Catholic transubstantiation right. view, but the classic reform view, mm-hmm. the real presence of Christ spiritually right. there. Or rather, Calvin says that by the Spirit in the in the Lord's Supper, the congregation is brought up before mm-hmm. the presence of God. Right. And that, but God's really there. Right. A sense of that God works through means. Mm-hmm. He works through the liturgy. That there, that order and uh, reciting creeds and all these things are part of formation. It's a part of making your faith tangible. And I think lit- liturgy is sort of the, the connecting tissue between doctrine and experience. It's a tool. It's a mode that you yeah. can enter in. It's a take, good way of putting it. To take your abstract ideas through the liturgy, make them tangible and practical. And out of that liturgy, it becomes experiential. It becomes mm-hmm. lived. So I think that's probably why I'd imagine it goes that way. And I think, you know, that that's, it, it probably does track on to how we generally mature. Um, but I think experiential, well, maybe we should talk about experiential. Yeah, first, yeah. You, you, you already kind of touched on it. The spontaneity. What Scott Red says is you know, yeah. the key virtue is spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning it's really spiritual if it's not planned. So right. planned out prayers, not spiritual. Yeah. Um, planned out worship, maybe not always, or at least spontaneous worship is more spirit-filled. It's more authentic. It could even be in, like preaching, like don't prepare, or I mean, maybe in some yeah, more radical yeah. forms. Yeah. So spontaneity is equated with spirituality and virtue. Um, meaning is felt through, is through feeling. Yeah. So if you feel things, that's God speaking to you. Yeah. Uh, if something feels like it's true, if something feels like you're being pulled in direction, something feels good or bad or spiritual or non-spiritual, that is your compass. And the goal is ecstasy, some kind of euphoria or relief that comes from worship and surrender to the Lord. So I think sometimes John Piper can get into this where it's like, you're not really worshiping God until there's this like emotional response. Shots fired. If you probably said that to him, he'd be like, no, that's not what I'm aiming for. Yeah. But I think even Edwards can get there a little bit. Although Edwards was, Jonathan Edwards, Great mm-hmm. Awakening, he was very cautious about displays of ecstasy. I think he started to see like, okay, some of them are genuinely wrought by the spirit. Some of them people are just being cray cray. Yeah. Being yeah. crazy. And, um, but, but the, the ecstasy is not bad. Right. The whole right. key thing though is emotions are the means by which encounters with God are evaluated. Logic and rationality seem cold, and liturgy essentially seems just like an outward superficial thing. Yeah. Um, so emotions equals spirituality. The presence of God equals feeling like he's there. And uh, liturgy doctrine are seen as cold, lifeless things. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of 
the experiential mode. It is very much about personal encounter. This is why I think a lot of American Christianity, when we think of what it is to be a Christian in America, we often think of like, I mean, we think of like megachurch, but the the experience of the individual Christians in that megachurch is very experiential because it's about... Well, I mean, we, we use the language of like uh, meeting God in a, in a radical way or a new way or a personal way. And so the emphasis is on if I, if I go to church or if I pray or if I read the Bible and I have this feeling inside me, then that means it worked. Then that means God has met me in that unique way. But if I don't, the, so it's the marker of authentic faith is feeling. And so there's a pressure there that if I don't have the feeling, then that means there wasn't something authentic, that the, the sermon wasn't truly convicting, the prayer didn't really work, the fellowship isn't real fellowship, because I didn't have the personal connection. And that's where I think it, it does get to become a little bit shaky, and we can see the individualism uh, cropping up in that sort of tendency. And it isn't healthy because it puts a little bit of a, a burden or a pressure on the individual to maybe artificially construct a feeling or to feel like your prayers are unanswered or your community is not working or God's not working in your life unless there's a proxy of a feeling. And so I think that's where that's where it tends to be a little bit more. Uh, it makes sense that people come into American Christianity through this route and this mode, but it's not where you should stay. I think it's like a, it's like a baby step. What I thought was interesting is when Red says that uh, he talks about people who are deconverting and he says that uh, with people who come from experiential backgrounds that can either lead to dangerous or sometimes heretical positions. So you start to feel things and then you say crazy things that aren't doctrinally true or precise or can lead to burnout and you're constantly trying to relive the personal experience. Or you go to heresy to find a new stimulus for experience. So I think about like, you know, people trying to, I don't know, get drunk on the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper or or different types of things you can see on YouTube or whatever. And there is a pressure of if your faith is based on an experiential thing, then you're going to live or die by what you feel. Right. I almost I think there's some kind of parallel with relationships or you think about marriage or the newlywed phase Um, once that you know, kind of starts to to fade, then the real work of building a genuinely deep relationship begins. It's sort of just like the gunpowder to get things started. Yeah. But you need more than that to sustain your life. And if you think that it's going to be like that your whole marriage, you're going to be constantly trying to relive that. And that might be an unrealistic experience. So, but again, it's not to deny, and I think this is important. When you can, when you point out some of the pitfalls of making Christianity all about experience, it is not denying the genuine experience that you had, hmm. especially in the beginning. Yeah, It may be that God gave you that because you were just a baby in your faith, right? But to constantly seek that and to go back to that, I think can be harmful. Now, again, this is cyclical. So you want to go to doctrine and liturgy so that when you come back to experience, it's richer, it's more defined, it's more mature, mm-hmm. it's deeper and more profound. So you can think about saints who have suffered through a lot or people who are in their 80s who've been married for you know 50 years or 60 years. They have an experiential knowledge of God, but it's much different than somebody at whatever conference for teenagers or 20-somethings. Sure, It's an experience that is deep, it's foundational, it's doctrinal, it's liturgical, but it's also very personal in a way or you could talk about when you talk to, to you know, again, to 80-year-olds 
when they start to talk about their love for one another, it's going to be much more significant and deep than two 20 year olds who've been dating for right. a year. Right. And, uh, so again, not that experience is bad, but there's a refining of it. And, and, and experience also has distinct advantages. Like I, right. I people who, so when we think of the experiential mode, denominations that come to mind are Baptist, non-denominational, Pentecostal, and we traditionally associate those with like sort of a vitality, uh, active, right. really strong. Who, who are the people who pray the most and have yeah. all night long prayer services? Pentecostals, right? They really expect God to do things. There's so that, so there is a kind of like um, if you think that that personal encounter is important and spontaneity is important, then it does drive you to maybe have more faith, have a more active prayer life. In a way that I've, I've observed even myself, the more I've I've gone into doctrine and liturgy, that that aspect of my life has just been not not a, not in the foreground prayer. in the same way. Yeah, yeah. Like prayer life in the same sort of I'm not praying hours a day or waking up at 5 a.m. Um, because I think sort of well, you know, I've got this sophisticated view of God or I'm a Calvinist, and so it, it does come with a distinct sort of advantage. And and moving into the other realms, you may lose out on some of the the good or healthy instincts that the experimental experiential mode is is capturing, uh, but going maybe too far. And on. it's unhealthy to ditch it completely, baby, right. baby out with bathwater. Right. Know? Yeah. And that is true. I mean, I remember a story. Um, it was, Paul Washer was telling it where there was this man who had come to his church and became a member and he, you know, grew up in a Pentecostal or a charismatic church. Mm -hmm. And he said, and he meant this as a compliment to Paul. He was like, you know, pastor, pastor Paul, I love your preaching. I love, you've given me such doctrinal clarity and so helpful, you know, I just kind of missed the old days when I would pray for stuff and it would happen. <laughs> and Washer was just like, wow. Like we've missed it if yeah. our doctrine is leading people not to pray. Yeah. And I think his ministry by and large is, I don't think it's experientially driven, but he does have that sense of like, he's trying to, he knows the crowd that he's talking to is probably the doctrinal crowd. Oh yeah. And he's trying to be like, look, man, you can have a great theology of prayer, but it's worthless if there's no practice of prayer. Yeah, and not only practice of prayer, but if you don't have a sense of God's love for you, mm -hmm. Not saying you have to have that all the time, but if you never have that, that's going to be difficult. And I think there is something. Even when you read the church fathers, there's a lot of experiential elements. Hmm. You know, people fasting and, and praying and and you know, sometimes having some crazy visions of God. Don't know if that's what we should be aiming for. But regardless, <laughs> you can kind of see that there is a sense where these people are like, I know God. Like, I know him like he's in the room with mm -hmm. me. I know him like he is my father who listens to me and I believe him. Yeah. And maybe that's what we can learn from that experiential phase as we try to recapture it is to say, how is my doctrine and my liturgy pushing me to recognize my adoption in God's family, to recognize uh, the great promises he has given to me, to recognize what liturgy is trying to facilitate. Right. It is facilitating an encounter with God. Which is why doctrine is important. So right. it. Doctrine helps structure the kinds of experiences that we should have. And it helps us think about God and ourselves and our relationship to God and our relationship to other believers in ways that hopefully enhance and strengthen the kinds of experiences that we're looking for. So there's still, um, there, I think the, the emphasis on doctrine is still a bit more on the individualistic side than the liturgical, but it corrects the experiential by 
making it not just about feeling. So logic is the grammar of the doctrinal mode, where it's 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 not just about do I have this emotional thing that that is the marker of truth, but now it's about does this thing make sense or fit into a system? That's the marker of truth in the doctrinal mode, and it comes as a healthy corrective. Uh, but like you pointed out, there's also this worry that you could become all head and no heart, or all uh, syllogism and no actual movement of true growth, true encounter with God, true prayer life. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I imagine Calvinists probably, if there's a theology that lends itself to less prayer, it's got to be something like Calvinism. <laughs> well, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. But there is something to it where I think people who are attracted to Calvinism like the hardness of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the uncompromising nature of it. I mean, you're just saying these bold things about the sovereignty of God. Right. So it might be self-selecting the people who are drawn to it mm -hmm. are the type of person who very analytical, logical, stuff like that. Not that that's bad. And again, this is, these are generalizations and as people coming out of experiential. Yeah. And then they say, well, that was, that was bad. Right. Right. That's right. not, and there's almost a disdain of like, right. I want to, oh, yeah. I, I almost feel like I'm justified in my curmudgeoniness yeah. because I've seen how hard mm -hmm. it is to be a Christian in those experiential contexts. And I do think there's, you know, doctrinal clarity is good. Sure. I think there are some times when it can create a hubris where you're just like, you think you've got the five points of Calvinism and you're like, you, you find that you that, only learned two minutes ago. That you only turned, <laughs> yeah, and you're schooling everybody else about right. it. And you don't, you haven't even, you don't even really know what Calvin said about a lot of stuff. Right. And, um, and you can be ignorant of the larger church tradition. You can, you know, shoot people who are your brothers. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there is something to that where it's almost like a badge of honor. And, and again, doctrinal, this could be for anything, not just Calvinism. It could be for any theological system. It's just the one that we're most familiar with. Right. But something Red talks about, and Red himself is a Calvinist. He's Reformed. He teaches at a Reformed seminary. Um, he talks about how like you said, doctrine without experience in liturgy can be cold and individualistic. It's mm -hmm. all about you and your pursuit of truth, whether you get it right, right, whether other people get it wrong. And he said this, the mere doctrinalist often recedes back into isolation or the family group where the system of belief can be protected and honed for more certainty and clarity. So you become really sectarian. You, essentially what happens is no one's ever pure enough for you. Yeah, You become doctrinally, you know, I think about in Timothy when it talks about um, Certain teachers, I think it's the first Timothy six, they uh, have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, which mm. produce envy, dissension, suspicion, uh, or slander and evil suspicion yeah. and constant friction among brothers. Now, that's not exactly the context of Calvinism sure. or whatever old stuff. But I think about that. Does that. Happen. Are you creating? You know, not every, again. It's the Jeremiah problem. Everyone thinks they're Jeremiah, and the other person, you know, <laughs> the other side is apostate Israel. Yeah. And in reality, that's probably not the case. You might be more like Elijah, who's humbled by God. He's like, I'm the only one who's faithful. And God's like, I've preserved thousands of prophets. You know, there's still a remnant. Um, but regardless, I think there's something to this where you can kind of be like, well, nobody's up to my doctrinal standard. Nobody's being as biblical as I am. And then you end up having a church of just you and your family. Yeah. And you you do see that. Absolutely. Um, and something happens where you think that you're just about the facts. But really, that way of thinking is a way of blindness to other perspectives. Right. To wanting to grow, 
you think you've arrived. You have no, no one. No one can challenge you. You only listen to certain groups of people. Mm. All the activities you think are you being doctrinal, and biblical, end up cutting you off from balance yeah, yeah. And, and from from anything that could challenge you. So it's kind of ironic. If you're a Calvinist, you might say, why don't these Arminians ever just read their Bible and allow themselves to be challenged? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, do you do that? Do you let yourself be challenged? Not that you're going to, I mean, we're reformed. It's fine. Yeah. But, you know, to say that you can't learn anything from Catholics, you can't learn anything from, you know, Pentecostals, you can't mm -hmm. learn anything from whatever. It's it's not relativism. It's not compromising. It's just saying, like, look, you got to be at some intellectual humility. Yeah. And be willing to acknowledge truth outside your own little circle. Right. And basically acknowledge that the world is bigger than what you've conceived of. And faith is is larger than what you've conceived of. And you don't want to run the risk of becoming the only voice that you can trust. That That's, that's the danger with this doctrinal mode here. Well, he says, such isolation is often marked by arrogance and a sense of superiority due to being right on, quote, the things that matter. Yeah. <laughs> While love, joy, fellowship, and evangelism are noticeably lacking. That's very, I think it that's is. true. Love, joy, fellowship, evangelism are lacking. And you kind of give yourself a get out of jail free card. You're like, oh, because it's okay. Because my doctrine's right. Because I'm be doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's almost like you're really good at the thing no one else wants is good at. So right. that allows you to be like a jerk. Yeah. And it's like, no, you know, it's sort of, I think it's when Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law. Yeah. You know, you tithe your cumin and your right, dill right, and all right. that stuff. But you neglect mercy and yeah. justice, justice and right. kindness and right. all that stuff. Yeah. And people roll their eyes. I feel it. I, I'm saying this all from personal experience where you roll your eyes at love, even God's love. And I think now I hear that and I'm just like, man, you got some issues. <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with your doctrine. You, you just, you're using your doctrine to avoid facing some things in your life. Man, this just got real. I think, I mean, yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. true. That's no, true. And, Absolutely. And, uh, now, again, yeah. I love doctrine. And yeah. I do think the church needs biblical, biblical literacy and growth. But if you want to grow in doctrine, man, you got to read people who disagree with you. You got to read tradition. You've got to read broadly yeah. and be able to contend. It's not, you're not being, you know, um, you're not standing for the faith by sitting in your own echo chamber right. kind of thing. Yeah. And oftentimes that sort of cloistered mentality, that individualistic, arrogant mentality of being superior mm -hmm. is cultivated because you do cut off anyone who disagrees. Right. Or or you or you demonize people of a different perspective. Yeah. Um and I think if you really want to learn, you can learn from I mean, it's funny because a lot of, you know, uh, Calvinists love Augustine. I'm like you wouldn't love all of Augustine. Yeah. You wouldn't like his doctrine of baptism. You, yeah. would, you wouldn't like his doctrine of the church, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but again, I think, I feel strongly about this because I think I've experienced this myself. Absolutely. And yeah, um, too. sometimes the, you're just about doctrine is a mask for people who don't want to think hard. Sure. And, you know, it can be its own smokescreen. Right. But sometimes I'm about the doctrine can be its own smokescreen. We just have to be aware of that. Yeah. And. I mean, being in the doctrinal mode, though, does lend itself to, there is growth that's taking place. And I think if someone is in the doctrinal mode, they can begin to crave something beyond sheer logic and systematics and things like that. But the person who's in the doctrinal mode, as Rudd points out, is not going to look back to the experiential mode because that's what they just came out of. So they're going to look for something else that's going to be bigger than just them, that's going to incorporate more than just the head. And so that's that's the springboard into the 
liturgical view. And I like Rudd is such a good, is it Rudd or Red? Rudd, Red, Red, Red. Red. Not, not Paul Rudd. Exactly. Uh, Scott Red. <laughs> um, I've noticed this even in myself. I think if you're, and maybe this is just too, maybe this is me just being prideful. I think if you're doing the doctrinal mode right, you do tend to crave liturgy because you see what it is that the doctrinal mode has offered you, structuring of your experience, uh, important knowledge that helps set you in the right direction, situate you, but it's still individualistic. And then you begin to realize, well, I'm not just a robot. I'm not just a brain in a meat suit. It, well, if you're a Calvinist, you are a robot. That's right. You are just a robot and God makes you do whatever he wants to do. Um, but no, if, if you're, if you're thinking through the doctrinal mode correctly, you should be arriving at, or at least beginning to appreciate, uh, and cultivate an appreciation for liturgy, um, for, I guess, two reasons. One, because liturgy takes seriously corporate stuff. It's no longer just about me. And also it is not just about my mind. So it takes seriously who I am as a human person with a body. So there's a craving for experience, yeah. but you don't want to go back. Exactly. And you're like, is there a way that my exactly. theology can inform my experience? And really, theology informing your experience in a rich, thought-out way is right. essentially it is. liturgy. I mean, it everybody is. has a liturgy. Everybody right. has a way of doing things, right. a structure, a way of participating in the church. Right. It's just how well thought out is it? How historical is it? How yes. you know accurate is it? Right. And in, for, for Red, he points out the distinctive virtue of liturgy as heritage and belonging. So the more you read in church history, the more you think that the, the church is, is bigger. And so you begin to think of yourself as, I'm in this massive conglomerate of people throughout history, globally, and I belong to that. And there's, there's a kind of feeling of satisfaction and securedness that comes with that. And so I felt this even personally. I belong to this group, and that is good in and of itself. And so you begin to see worship as, like, the church service isn't where I go to meet God. I mean, it is that, but it's not all that. Like, I go there to worship with people, and corporate worship is a good thing in and of itself. And God meets the church. He meets me because I'm part of the church, but it's not like we're all doing our own thing and God happens to meet us there individually. No, God is meeting us as his body and there's something important in that realization. So it kind of goes generally, again, one path is you are saved into a very experiential thing. Then you're like, man, you get burnt out and you read doctrine. You're like, oh, man, I was doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. And then the doctrine, you're like, this is not, my soul isn't growing. I just feel like I want more than this. I want to experience life in the body. You start learning about sacraments, church history, all that stuff. And then you're like, liturgy comes in and it's a way for you to like kind of reconnect with the experiential side. and. And there's a tissue, there's a connective tissue. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea of, so how do you get the, the, the connection between, like I said earlier, experience and or, uh, uh, doctrine and experience could be the liturgy, taking right. that doctrine in an ordered way to get to experience. But also the way from liturgy to a new doctrine, a new denomination, you often have to experience something. So yeah. um, you, you grow up in a dead orthodoxy, church kind of like it's liturgical but it's just dead there's no life in it and then suddenly you go to another church that's just alive with wonder and and awe and people are excited and there's an energy then you yeah. start to go what do these people believe mm -hmm. and you start to learn about their doctrine yeah so the experience can bridge from liturgy to often a new kind of yeah 
denomination or way of thinking that you go into. Um, and so you can see how all of these connect together. And sometimes doctrine, the way that it works here, doctrine is a connecting tissue. If you're experiential, you're like, what's with all this standing and kneeling and yeah. liturgy and why is that guy wearing a robe and all that stuff? It's weird. So you need a middle ground. You need doctrinal categories. You first need to think that doctrine is important, hmm. that how I feel in a service is not as important as what is true. But then once you have those categories of truth, you go, okay, but how do I find what is true, beautiful and glorious and yeah. enriching to my soul? Well, liturgy is a tool to do that. And now you're back into experiential. And hopefully that's the cycle that you have. I do think that the 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 thing that is the most um, the advantage of the liturgical mode also comes with a worry. It's like a double edged sword. So with liturgy, it's about participation. When I go to the liturgy, I'm kneeling, I'm standing, I'm reciting, I'm eating, I'm fellowshipping, all these things. And so what's freeing about that is it doesn't matter how I feel. I don't need to go and produce a feeling or wait for a feeling. I can do these things in this embodied way and participate in corporate worship, and that's enough. So it is like the pressure from the experiential mode is no longer there that I have to conjure up this feeling or wait for a feeling to know that what's happening is authentic. But on the flip side, the error in going the other direction is like it could become just empty rote. It could be just going through the motions without any meaning behind it. So the, the thing that is the one pro and the one advantage of the liturgical mode, if not carefully safeguarded against could easily just turn into mindless ritual, right? right? And right. so that that's something to, to, to safeguard against. And I've noticed this even myself. What I think is sometimes me just being more corporate is actually me just checking out from mm. from, litur- from liturgy. Yeah. And so that's that's something that I We've seen you about. sleeping in church, Paul. Absolutely. Praying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't be talking about sleeping in church. Oh, Brian. oh, shoot. We've got some stories. Right. We're going to edit that out. <laughs> well, I think you can see it in broadly in movements too. You sort of have this, you know, huge seeker sensitive movement very experiential yeah emerging church and then you had this you know young restless reform doctrinal movement and now you're starting to see non-denominational churches be very liturgical liturgy is all the rage now it Hmm. seems so maybe it goes cyclically broadly what we don't want to say that is good is don't take this as like a church hopping plan right right don't be like all right we're going to spend a couple years in experiential church go to a doctrinal church and then go to a you know a, a, a liturgical church um because I think this is, again, use this primarily as for yourself. Right. Because you can go to a Baptist church and you can have a greater appreciation for liturgy that's happening there. Sure. Maybe they could grow in liturgical things, but don't go there being like, you need to be Anglican or whatever. Right. right. Or don't go to the spiritual thing and be like, you need to be Calvinist. You can appreciate where you are as you develop. And you can appreciate maybe your church is more experiential or you can be like, cool, like, that's fine, but I can use my growth in doctrine to enhance my experience in that church. Absolutely, yeah. I can use uh, my closeness with God in prayer to enjoy some of the lifelessness of liturgy yeah, yeah. or whatever. Or I can use my doctrinal background to help me um, enjoy an experiential church without losing my mind. I can use liturgical practices to give some practical weight to my theological knowledge if I'm in a very doctrinal church or yeah. whatever and no church is like 100 one of each every church is a mix and churches evolve over time you know this is again this is just a model uh not sort of like a definitive thing yeah. but i think it is helpful and it makes sense of a lot of con- uh, uh, conflict i think mm-hmm. it makes sense of a lot of 
people, um, their own personal story of how they end up in particular churches. And uh, it's a really, uh, really well-written article. It's it's helpful, I think, even in just self-diagnosis. So I think that's right. One, yeah. one thing to take away from this, just take a step back and, and you know, have all three in your mind and think about where, and it might not even be that you fall neatly into one category. You might be in between two, but notice that with that comes some distinctive pros and cons. So if you're indoctrinal, think about maybe what are the things that I've learned? How have I used that to strengthen my experiential stuff? But also what are the errors that I'm going to be prone to and how can I look out for that? And so use this as this chance to, to take stock and think about the distinctive ways that your, your current way of Christian living might be um, an improvement upon the previous stage you're in, but also be wary of the pitfalls. And um, just having that in mind, I think, is one way to safeguard against it. And these kind of cap out, too. It's, at some point, you can learn all the doctrine you want. You need something to complement that. And then liturgy comes in. Right, right. But then liturgy, doing all the practices, if you're not being honest with God, if yeah. you're not really praying and having a sense of a personal connection to God, then you're going to cap out there. And so the whole idea is, you're not just mindlessly going through this cycle, but when you go from experience to doctrine to liturgy and back to experience, that experience is enriched. And then you learn more theology and that's enriched. And then the liturgy is more enriched. And then you go back in your experience and it should be an upward spiral. And that's hopefully what it is. Wow. It's great. There you go. Good there stuff. You go. Check out this. Well, we're going to have the uh, article in the show notes. Uh, I suggest that you uh, check it out. I think you will be blessed by it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week.